Happy New Year. Thank you for uh, tuning in this morning. We're delighted to have you on, the, on a beautiful Hilton Head Island in Bluffton in South Carolina Day. You might have seen this morning in the news where the FAA has put a ground stop on all flights uh, until 10 a.m. this morning due to uh, computer problems. And I also found it very interesting. I'm one of those people who likes to know what happened this day in history. And as I, as I was looking back prior to uh, this morning, I saw that in 1935, Amelia Earhart flew solo from Hawaii to California. And all these years later, we're still flying, but uh, some computer glitches this morning. In the new year, I'm pleased to announce also that uh, Tom Hens has joined our team. Tom comes to us from a stellar career in banking. Uh, he's got a strong, if going to have a strong emphasis on working with our small businesses, assisting them as well as leading them. And then from a policy side, he's going he's gonna to work for the betterment of our community, uh, for the betterment for our residents, as well as, as for our businesses. And he'll do that not only on a local level, but a state level and a national level, too, uh, working with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. We have a timely lineup of guests for you on this uh, first, first show of the new year. And here to talk about what just happened in the House of Representatives in Washington. We'll also see where our economy is headed and uh, what Hilton Head Island's new mayor's priorities will be for 2023. You know, last week we watched uh, as the Speaker of the House, how that all unfolded, and it hasn't happened that way in over 100 years. And Neil Bradley offers some very interesting insight. Neil, he served as the Chief of Staff for Congressman, for Congressman Kevin McCarthy uh, during his 20 years of working on Capitol Hill. And he's one of the most influential people in Washington, working on behalf of business each and every day. He currently serves as executive vice president and chief policy officer for the United States Chamber of Commerce. And he's also a frequent contributor on CNN, Fox, and many other media outlets. But I want to tell you, most of all, Neil's a great guy and a good friend. Neil Bradley, thanks for joining us this morning. We're uh, delighted to have you. Well, Bill, thank you, and right back at you. Um, uh, you and the Hilton Head Chamber are phenomenal partners uh, to us. You're a good friend to me personally. I have but one regret, and you know this, uh, and that is my wife and I don't get down to Hilton Head nearly as often as we used to pre-kids. Um, but uh, he's getting older, and that'll have to change soon. Um, as you noted, Bill, um, pretty historic week uh, last week. We finally uh, elected a Speaker of the House on the 15th ballot at about uh, two in the morning, uh, Friday into, into Saturday morning. We hadn't had multiple ballots for speaker uh, in a hundred years. Uh, we hadn't had more uh, than a dozen ballots for speaker since before the Civil War. So in, in that context, it, it truly is historic. But in other contexts, it's kind of the new normal. Um, if, you, if you think about our election cycles, um, they reflect the fact that we are a pretty deeply but pretty evenly divided country. Um, 10 of the last 12 elections, that's uh, 10 of the last 12 elections since 2000, have produced a change in control in either the House, the Senate, or the White House. So we're living in a period in which majorities and uh, presidencies kind of flip back and forth uh, between the parties. The 2022 election was no exception to that. We went from a 50-50 Senate to a 51-49 uh, Democratic uh, majority, one, one seat. In the House, we went from a 222 to 213 Democrat to Republican majority. 
213 Republican to uh, Democratic majority. So literally just a mirror image uh, of what we were after the, the 2020 election. Um, you know, interestingly, while all the focus was on uh, the number of votes that uh, now Speaker McCarthy got, at the end of the day, uh, he got 216 votes to become Speaker. The last time Nancy Pelosi was up, she got 216 votes to become Speaker. Uh, when John Boehner, the, the, the predecessor to Speaker Pelosi, the last Republican uh, Speaker before Paul Ryan, he won with 216 votes. So in, in some ways, there's more public drama around it, uh, but uh, the outcome and these uh, close votes kind of reflect where we are as a nation. Um, what does this mean kind of going forward? And let me share uh, an areas of concern, areas of opportunity as we see it, and then just a little bit of kind of mission, I think, for the business and, and chamber community. Um, and in terms of areas of concern, I, I think it really is on, on the fiscal side. Um, there's no question uh, that our runaway debt and deficit, we have to do something to, to bring those under control. I think the concern is, is that uh, to get anything done in divided government, you're going to have to get Republicans and Democrats on the same page. So there is no way to make law over the next two years without getting to bipartisan agreement getting Republicans in the House and Democrats in the Senate, and obviously President Biden's signature. And when we look at some of the commitments that were made on um, the fiscal side uh, to cut spending back to uh, FY22 levels, um, which uh, means if you're gonna hold defense harmless, uh, you gotta come up with an extra $75 billion uh, on, on, on top. And if you hold veterans harmless, you gotta come up with even, even more money to do that. Um, if you look at the commitments on how appropriations bills are going to work and the debt limit, we are uh, looking at an increased chance of another government shutdown. We haven't had one in about five years, um, but the last one was uh, pretty problematic for businesses, people who were waiting on permits and uh, processing from uh, federal agencies who literally had uh, a month where they couldn't get anything done. Um, so that's an increased risk today. Um, perhaps the biggest risk, of course, is, is the debt limit. Um, the U.S. has never defaulted on its debt. Um, if you go back to our founding, kind of the, the, the miracle of Alexander Hamilton and the founders was this concept of the full faith and credit of the United States government. Um, it's the, the reason that we have interest rates as low as they are. It's the reason why the dollar is the reserve currency of the world. All of those things inure to the benefit of the American business community and the American people. Those begin to be questioned if, if we were to ever default uh, on our debt. Uh, interest rates absolutely go up. That means um, uh, mortgage rates go higher than they are even today. That loans for businesses and individuals, interest rates go up on that. Uh, it means turmoil for businesses uh, who uh, uh, operate uh, globally and have concerns about trade uh, uh, values and exchange rates and what this means for, for their profits. So um, it's hard to overstate the importance of making sure that um, we don't fall, our, fall ourselves into a default, and it'll be a, a big focus of ours uh, at the Chamber. If those are areas of concern, there are also areas uh, of opportunity. And you know, two of the big ones that we're going to be focused on at the chamber, uh, the first is permitting reform. 
um, thanks to your and, and others' help, um, we finally got a major infrastructure package enacted. The biggest hurdle now isn't the funding to do projects. The biggest hurdle now is navigating a really complicated permitting process so that we can actually start projects. At the end of last year, we had competing proposals in the Senate, one from Republicans and one from Democrats, on how to reform the permitting process. The interesting thing is that those two proposals had more in common than they had different. And we think that there's an opportunity this year to bridge the differences uh, between the two parties and get some permitting reform enacted that will allow a lot of the projects that we now have funded to actually occur uh, on a timely basis. The second, and this may surprise some people, uh, but actually is doing something about uh, the southern border and legal immigration reform. Um, you know, we've been at this kind of stalemate uh, for years uh, between efforts to secure the border and necessary updates to our legal immigration system. Neither side, proponents on either side, uh, wanted to give up anything to the other to kind of advance the ball. There seems to be the settling in of this notion that that's no longer acceptable, that um, the, the, the one thing that everyone agrees we can't do is nothing, that we can't keep the status quo for another two years. And perhaps the, the most dramatic example of why I have hope for uh, immigration and border security is what's going on actually uh, over the last several days at the southern border. It actually wasn't President Biden's trip. It was a trip of uh, bipartisan senators, uh, Tom Tillis, Kristen Sinema, John Cornyn, um, uh, Chris Murphy on the Democratic side, all of whom went down there together for the purpose of saying, if all of us are going to get anything done, we're going to have to compromise. And it's building off some um, quiet negotiations that with the U.S. Chamber support took place at the end of last year uh, to address things like ag workers and H-1B workers and H-2B and seasonal workers, and at the same time, put more resources into the border, uh, uh, more requirements around E-Verify to make sure that uh, people aren't coming into the country and working illegally. And so we actually see some pathways here um, uh, to get something uh, done. Um, there will also be other areas where, where we'll get bipartisan agreement. The great misnomer is that divided government uh, absolutely means gridlock. It actually doesn't. We've, we've been able to find bipartisan solutions in governments that look just like this one, uh, Republican House, Democratic Senate, Democratic White House. Um, in fact, the last major reforms that we got to SEC regulations and access to capital for uh, uh, emerging new and growth businesses um, was done in uh, those two years after Republicans took the majority in the Obama midterm. So we have a list of things that we think we can get done. Finally, let me just leave you with this, and this is a kind of a, a mission for all of us here. Um, and that is there are a lot of new members of Congress. A startling fact, you know, uh, in 2017, we finally enacted long overdue uh, tax reform to benefit families, corporations, and, and small businesses. Uh, at the time, there were 24 Republicans on the House Ways and Means Committee who put that together. Um, it, it's only five years later, I guess six years later, five and a half years later, the number of members who are still around out of that 24 today is five. Um, so that tells you something about some of the turnover that's occurred in Washington and some of the work that we have to do educating lawmakers about pro-growth, pro-business policies. So with that, Bill, I'll turn it back over to you and happy to take any questions. Neil, thank you. And uh, that, that number 216, that was certainly very interesting to, 
to hear that. I, I, had, I did not know that. We've, we've got a couple questions for you. And the uh, first one is coming from Mary. And Mary is asking, was there anything related to term limits put forth by those negotiating votes for the speaker? Uh, there was. There uh, is a commitment that the House will vote on a term limits proposal. Um, uh, it's been maybe almost 20 years uh, since the House has voted on term limits. Um, obviously, that has to be done uh, via constitutional amendment so that it will take a two-thirds vote. Um, we don't see much opportunity for it getting two-thirds in the House. So they, they will have a debate. They will have a vote. Uh, I think that's important. But I, I don't. I don't think it's going to pass. All right. Thank you. A question for Mark. He's asking, how difficult will it be for Speaker McCarthy if a single member of Congress is now allowed to start the vote all over again? Yeah. You know, um, it's certainly something that hangs out there. I mean, to be, to be fair, this is not a new rule. Uh, it existed from 1910 all the way until um, Speaker Pelosi changed it um, uh, during uh, about four years ago. Um, it had actually never been used during that period. Uh, it was threatened to be used against Speaker Boehner and ultimately led to, to his resignation. So I, I do think it is a area of concern. Obviously, one member can make the motion, but you still have to get a majority, 218. Um, I think the thing that concerns us is making sure that members don't try to use that tactic as a way of stalling other important business. So, um, you know, we've articulated our concern, for example, that um, we need to do a government funding bill to keep the government from shutting down. There happens to be a small number of members who don't like it, and they use this motion uh, as a, as, frankly, a dilatory tactic. Uh, to prevent Congress from getting, or to prevent the House from taking up that funding bill. And so um, I think that's the real area of concern more than anything else. Thank you. Next question is coming from Robert. And Robert says, do you think Congress will work to make changes to the recent growth of the IRS? You know, they voted uh, Monday night uh, to uh, in the House to rescind the money uh, that was provided to the IRS and the Inflation Reduction Act. That passed on a, a party line vote, uh, but uh, Senator Schumer and, uh, and the Senate leadership have already made clear they're not even going to take that up for a vote. So um, I, I think this is kind of the end of the line. It, it's going to be a debate. The House is going to approve it. The Senate's not going to uh, rescinding the money. The, the Senate's not going to approve rescinding the money, and, and, and therefore not much is going to change. Okay, one last question for you coming from Ted. And Ted is asking, do you feel with a, re a Republican House and Democratic Senate, will we see more compromise and uh, working across the aisle? Well, we have to. If, if anything's going to get done, it takes compromise and working across the aisle. Um, we have a phrase we're using here at the, at the U.S. Chamber, um, gridlock's a choice. And so it, we don't have to live in gridlock. Um, if elected lawmakers choose gridlock, then that's what we get. Uh, but if they choose uh, uh, working across the aisle, finding areas of common agreement, there's actually a whole lot of things that they can get done. So we view part of our job as kind of pushing on them to make sure that they choose progress uh, rather than gridlock. Uh, because if they choose gridlock, we're going to be sitting here for the next two years. And, and by the way, as I to end where I began, 10 of the last 12 elections have resulted in a change in control. 
this isn't going away anytime soon. If we can't figure out how to get uh, both sides working together to find some level of common ground, uh, then the outcome of uh, the after the next election is likely to be more gridlocked too. And we just can't afford that as a nation. Neil, thank you very much for your time. I can see uh, coming in the, in the very near future, hashtag gridlocks a choice. Gridlocks a choice. That's exactly right. Thank you, there Bill. You great to see everyone. Always great to see you. Thanks for being with us. All right. And then also, I'd like to tell you, if you'd like to take a deeper dive, I've asked Kelly to put in the chat box uh, uh, one, of, one of Neil's colleagues, a, a U.S. Chamber of Commerce staffer, who formerly served as the par parliamentarian uh, in the House. And he's going to, he does a really, really very good job of explaining why the vote took place, how it took place, and some of the history behind the vote. So I'd encourage you to, uh, if you have a chance this afternoon or, or later on this week, to to tune in and uh, click on that and see what, what he has to say. All right, so now we know that in 2022, we've talked about the, the economy, we're talking about it in 2023, what type of challenges we may have and uh, what's ahead of us. And to find out just uh, how that will impact South Carolina, we're really glad to have with us again, South Carolina's research economist, Dr. Joy Van Nessen from uh, USC's Darlin Moore School of Business. And I'll tell you, Dr. Van Nessen is highly regarded for his expertise in addition to his work on behalf of the state of South Carolina with the University of South Carolina. He's also done uh, economic research and consulting for, I don't know, a couple small companies you might have heard, uh, somebody like maybe Boeing or Michelin. Dr. Van Nessen, welcome and uh, tell us what we expect to see in 2023. Well, good morning, Bill, and thank you very much for that kind introduction and for inviting me to, to participate this morning. It's, it's great to see everybody, and, uh, and Happy New Year to everyone. It's, 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 it's a real pleasure to, to be here. And I know we just have a few minutes this morning, so let's go ahead and, and jump right in. Really, when we look at 2023 with respect to both the state's economy and for the nation's economy, the big question on everyone's mind is whether we're destined for recession this year. Uh, that, is, that is the concern. And we've seen some slowdowns across the board throughout 2022. And so given the persistent high inflation and the rate increases coming from the Fed that we've experienced, uh, are we going to see a recession in, in 2023? I do have concerns over the possibility of a mild recession this year that I will address. But before we do that, I first want to put into context where the state's economy stands currently in January of, of 2023, because even though we do have concerns about a potential recession this year, the reality is that right now, South Carolina's economy overall is still in very good shape. We have seen very strong employment growth throughout most industry sectors over the last two years, including in 2022. And as of this past summer, uh, the state as a whole has now surpassed its pre-pandemic employment levels, meaning that for South Carolina as a whole, we've recovered all the jobs that we lost during the, the 2020 recession. So remember, during that 60-day period between February and April of 2020, South Carolina actually lost about 15% of its employment base, about 308,000 jobs. And all of those jobs now have been recovered. And today, where we are in January of 2023, we have about, we're at employment levels that are about 3% higher uh, than where we were back in February of 2020 before the COVID recession began. Meaning that we have more people working today in South Carolina 
than at any time in, in our history. And this recovery and great job growth that we've seen extends across most regions in South Carolina. Uh, areas that have seen the most job growth over the past two years have been Charleston, uh, Myrtle Beach, uh, and Greenville-Spartanburg. All three areas have seen uh, have employment levels today in excess of 5% compared to where they were before, uh, before the pandemic recession in February of 2020. Hilton Head, Beaufort County also has recovered all the jobs uh, that it lost as well, although it hasn't seen growth that's quite as been as strong as in Charleston, Myrtle Beach, and in uh, Greenville and Spartanburg. And the reason is that if we look across the board industry-wise, we find that most of the recovery, or at least a bulk of the recovery, has come from manufacturing and come from the housing industry, uh, and more generally come from the durable goods sector. That's what's really driven this recovery nationwide and what's been driving the recovery in South Carolina. And those three areas have all have high concentrations of manufacturing and have seen benefits from, uh, from housing recovery uh, as well. And so this durable goods bubble uh, really emerged over the past two years, again, driving growth that we have seen and the great recovery that we've been experiencing. And that's largely been the result of a change in consumer preferences that normally when we think about where consumers are spending money, it's both on goods and on services. And throughout 2020 and 2021, we saw the pendulum swing away from the services sector and towards the goods sector and durable goods in particular, primarily because consumers were staying home. Everybody was worried about getting sick, particularly before the vaccine was widely available, uh, worried about uh, going out. And so they were making home renovations. In many respects, they were adding to their home, looking for uh, a way to add a home office because they were working at home and remote work was becoming more of a norm. Uh, buying vehicles, fitness equipment, furniture, all of those things at the expense of going on vacation or going out to eat. So we saw a significant pendulum swing uh, uh, in the direction of goods and away from, from services. And then in 2022, we began to see the reverse happen. This, the pendulum began to swing back. We saw uh, less spending on durable goods, more spending on the services sector. So even though manufacturing and housing really drove growth in 2020 and 2021, in 2022, it was the services sector that led the way in leisure and hospitality, and that happened throughout South Carolina, as we've seen consumer preferences move back towards uh, their pre-pandemic norms. So all in all, uh, we've seen very strong uh, employment growth and a very strong economy in, in South Carolina. And so that begs the question of why doesn't it feel like the economy is doing well? Uh, we know that for many people it doesn't. Consumer confidence levels are actually at their lowest levels right now, going all the way back to 2008 when we were in the depths of the, of the Great Recession. So for many, uh, it doesn't feel like the economy is doing well, despite the fact that we have a lot of positive metrics that we, that we can observe. And the reason for that is actually very simple. Uh, it's inflation. Uh, inflation, as we all know, is at a 40-year high and has been throughout most of 2022 and continues to be the single biggest threat for South Carolina's economy as we go into 2023 uh, because it reduces the buying power of the consumer. And consumers, consumer spending represents the largest percentage of GDP, the largest percentage of our economy, about 70% of GDP comes from consumer spending. 
And this high inflation has already had very practical implications for South Carolinians. Uh, when we just do a straight comparison between wage growth for South Carolina workers and the inflation rate, uh, we find that inflation has exceeded wage growth in South Carolina by about five percentage points over the last two years and by about three percentage points in the last 12 months. So from a practical perspective, uh, that just means that the average South Carolinian has been consistently losing purchasing power uh, over the past year and, and over the past two years. So that, that continues to be a, a problem. And so why has inflation been so high in 2022? It begs the question of what the cause here and what's the cause. And, and it's essentially been because we've seen a significant supply and demand imbalance emerge since the COVID uh, recession in 2020, in which demand has been far outpacing supply. Demand has been far outpacing supply overall. And the cause of that imbalance uh, we can attribute that to the high levels of stimulus activity that occurred in 2020 and, and 2021. And, and, and the way I like to describe it is to use an analogy um, that basically the U.S. economy drank two Red Bulls in the form of two federal stimulus packages, one in 2020 and one in 2021, $6 trillion worth. And we've been on the equivalent of a caffeine high ever since in the form of a major spike in consumer demand. And one of the side effects has been the high inflation that we've seen throughout the last year. And since 2020, uh, we've seen the average US household benefit considerably, uh, both from that stimulus, those stimulus dollars, as well as from the rapidly recovering labor market. So if you think about the average household, they have been able to go back to work and are earning wages. And they're also benefiting from the stimulus checks that were issued as a result of the, uh, uh, the stimulus package. Uh, they've also benefited from a variety of tax credits, uh, long-term deferment of student loan repayments, uh, in some cases, uh, enhanced unemployment insurance benefits, particularly in 2020 and early 2021. So when you put all this together, a rapidly recovering labor market plus all of these stimulus dollars, uh, you get a situation where consumers and American households are in very good financial shape. And in fact, the average checking account balance for the American for American households right now is still about 10% higher than where it was back in 2019. And so what that means is that consumers have had a ha, have had these financial reserves to be able to continue to spend even though inflation has been high. And that's one of the reasons why we've seen a strong economy persist throughout 2022. Consumer spending has been very stable despite the fact that we've seen uh, a 40-year high in inflation, that, that many households still have these financial reserves that they're able to, to draw on. But that is a temporary factor. And as we go into 2023, that's going to be an important, uh, an important metric to continue to watch. Because 2023 is likely to be, uh, as, as we look at a, at a long-run outlook and really what's the dominant theme for this year, uh, I think it's likely to be a theme of recalibration or, or readjustment where we do come off of this caffeine high and move back closer to pre-pandemic norms that are more consistent with, with long-run growth rates. The Federal Reserve is taking a leading role in this recalibration through raising interest rates, and we've already seen the effects of these higher interest rates uh, in the housing market that we're all familiar with. Uh, that's typically the first sector to be impacted 
uh, by rising rates. And I mentioned before that housing has been one of the principal drivers for the state's economy in 2020 and 21, but in fact was the only industry that actually saw a decline in employment levels in 2022. So if you look across uh, all sectors in South Carolina's economy over the last year, housing is the only one that saw uh, negative employment growth. Um, again, why is that the case? It's because of, of rising interest rates, this readjustment back to, to pre-pandemic norms. Uh, mortgage rates have gone up. That's made the cost of buying a home higher. Uh, and the total reduction in sales activity in South Carolina has been about 23% um, over, over the past 12 months. But again, that reflects a recalibration to sales levels that are more consistent with what we were seeing before the pandemic began back in 2019 and, and early 2020. So readjustment is really the theme. This is this is not 2008. This is not a period where we're looking at a major uh, a major economic pullback. But it is a period where we go back to what I mentioned before about this durable goods bubble. We are readjusting to levels of demand that are more consistent with what we saw before the pandemic and which are more likely to be uh, be sustainable long run. The, what we've seen, particularly in the housing industry over the past two years, uh, is something that is clearly not sustainable as we move forward. So in 2023, uh, it's likely that we'll continue to see a, a broader pullback as interest rates uh, continue to rise. Uh, a recession is certainly not inevitable this year, um, but it will primarily depend on how quickly inflation subsides. Uh, so in wrapping up, I would invite you to think about a comparison to keep your eye on and really a race between inflation and household savings. So I mentioned before that households are still in pretty good financial shape, but of course that's temporary as uh, high rates of inflation are eating into those excess financial reserves. And so you can think about inflation coming down in 2023 and also those, uh, those excess financial reserves coming down as well. Which one comes down first? Can, in, can we get inflation down before back to, back to normal levels before consumers eat away at all of their excess financial reserves? If the answer is yes, then we are far less likely to see a recession this year. If inflation remains high, however, and consumers do exhaust those resources, then we're going to see more of a pullback in consumer spending, and that's likely to lead to uh, an uptick in, in unemployment over time and perhaps the onset of a, of a mild recession. So to sum up, I would suggest that that race in this, in this year of recalibration is really what we need to be focused on. How quickly does inflation come down and how does that pair with the excess financial reserves that American households still have uh, in terms of how it relates to what we may see with consumer spending in 2023? So a lot of information there. I'll go ahead and stop there. And I'll be happy to take any questions that, that anyone has. And thank you again for inviting me this morning. All right, Dr. Von Essen, thank you so much. Very, very informative as always. And we do have a few questions for you. The first one is coming from Susan. And Susan is asking, we have job recovery, but workforce is still an issue. How do you see that changing in 2023? Well, we have a very significant labor shortage uh, in South Carolina and, and throughout the U.S. And the short answer is we don't see that improving in, in 2023 and really in the next several years. Uh, the labor shortage that we're currently seeing is largely the result of the baby boomers who have retired in large numbers over the past two years. 
And that demographic shift is likely is likely permanent. So more than half of the reduction in the labor force that we've seen, more than half of the labor shortage that we're currently experiencing is a result of those baby boomers who have, have retired. So I think the message to the business community is that this, this labor shortage is going to be with us for the foreseeable future. So it's something that employers are going to have to get creative uh, with in terms of, of how to address that, whether that's raising wages or uh, looking at other incentives to attract and retain employees, changing changing uh, 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 business hours or business practices and in ways that can uh, accommodate um, this labor shortage. And in many cases, it's going to involve the, the adoption of more technology uh, to be able to produce more uh, with, with fewer workers. So I think that's, that's, that's the biggest piece of the story there. And the way, the way to really think about this, uh, or one, one way to think about it, is to consider the fact that baby boomers in general uh, turn 65 roughly from the years 2010 to 2030. And so what we would like to have seen is for them to retire at a slow and steady pace over that 20-year period. But what actually happened was that in 2008, because of the Great Recession and the, uh, the stock market uh, pullback, most baby boomers had to continue to work for several more years because they lost much of what was in their 401ks. So we didn't see as many retirements in 2010, 11, 12, and 13. And then you fast forward to 2020, and then baby boomers there were highly incentivized to retire because they were worried about getting sick. And the stock market was doing extraordinarily well, particularly up through 2021. So rather than a smooth and steady retirement phase over 20 years, it was all squeezed into a very short time period. And we're basically experiencing that market disruption right now. All right. Thank you for that. Mike is asking if the supply is supply chain still having an impact on our economy. It is. We've seen uh, in, in many sectors the supply chain uh, issues that have begun to be resolved. Uh, we don't see businesses reporting as many disruptions, uh, particularly in the second half of 2022. And that was apparent during the Christmas season where inventory levels uh, were much higher, certainly compared to what they look like in 2021. So we're, we're definitely moving in the right direction there. Um, I don't think we're going to see a full or even close to a full resolution before the end of this year, the end of 2023. And that's mainly because uh, there are two factors at play. Number one, we're seeing some pullback in demand overall, which we talked about, which I think will continue this year. And of course, uh, shortages are alleviated when demand falls. But the, the biggest factor uh, is that it just takes time to scale up production uh, to accommodate these broader uh, increases in, in demand in, in, in specific sectors. And so now that we're getting uh, one and a half to two years in uh, to, this, uh, to this challenge, um, that is enough time for many businesses to build these new resources that they need. So when you put those two together, higher supply and uh, a pullback in, in demand in 2023 suggests that many of these constraints will be resolved by uh, by later this year. You know, our economy is based around tourism here locally. And uh, during the pandemic and last year, we fared very, very well. And you mentioned you talk about recalibration and readjustment and, and demand. 
what do you see, what could the negative effects be if we as a destination were to take our foot off the gas, rest on our laurels, and think that we're going to continue to see that same demand that we've experienced in the last two years? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I, I think in the short run, uh, we are uh, likely to see some, some bumps in the road. So it's likely that we'll see some pullback uh, this year. Uh, tourism has done very well. And, and in a sense, tourism is in a good position because uh, the industry has the wind at its back because we are still seeing a ramp up as consumers move. That pendulum swings back towards services and, and away from, from goods. So that's a very positive uh uh, positive sentiment that consumers have for 2023, and, and that is going to provide some momentum to tourism overall. But if we look more long run over the next decade, I am very bullish about South Carolina and about tourism more, more generally, because we are looking, South Carolina is, is right in the middle of the Southeastern United States, which is poised for some of the highest growth rates in the country uh, over the next two decades largely because we expect to see more people moving to this region. Uh, South Carolina is a very attractive uh, tourist destination. It's also very attractive for uh, the population more generally, looking to retire, uh, looking to move for job opportunities. And the Southeast will see more population gains over the next two decades than any other region of, of the country um, based on current migration patterns. Um, so I'm I'm very bullish uh, about the long run of the area and of South Carolina as a whole, even if we do see some uh, a, a bit of a pullback in demand in the short run as we recalibrate in 2023. But again, having said that, I think uh, tourism and the service sector um, is in a better position than most simply because consumer preferences are changing in its favor. Dr. Von Essen, it's always great to see you. It's even better to hear you and the knowledge that you share with us. And we appreciate you being with our group today and uh, look forward to talking with you again sometime here in the new year. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for having me. Thank you. All right. We're going to take things now to the local level and uh, we're going to talk to Hilton Head Island's newly elected mayor, Alan Perry. And for those of you who might not be familiar with Alan, uh, he grew up on Hilton Head Island, and he and his family have been very, very involved over the years, and really a true, truly a part of the fabric of our community. Uh, his family was instrumental in launching the Island Recreation Association probably close to 40 years ago, as well as uh, being involved in the most recent multi-million dollar expansion. You've undoubtedly seen Alan for many, many years volunteering at the uh, St. Patrick's Day Parade. You've probably heard him announcing at the RBC Heritage. You might have seen him volunteering for uh, uh, other events the Rec Center does and so, so, so much more. So, Alan, we're glad to have you with us this morning. Congratulations on being elected as Hilton Head Island's mayor. And uh, love to, to hear what the first few weeks have looked like and then maybe a couple of your priorities as you move forward in 2023. Sure, sure. Thanks, Bill. I appreciate that that introduction. And, and first of all, before I get going, I you know, want to congratulate Tom Hens for joining the team there. Um, I've had the pleasure of working with Tom in the past at the bank, and, and what a great individual he is, and what a great addition to the, the Chamber of Commerce and for our community. Um, you know, you ask about the past couple of weeks, and, and it's been drinking from a fire hose. It's been uh, learning lots and, and getting my schedule set and making certain that I'm not missing anything. Um, you know, going forward, some of the, the, the priorities that we're looking at is really making certain that 
that we're honoring what the previous council has done uh, with their initiatives, mainly with housing. So, so we're going to be seeing more of that come around uh, in the next couple of weeks, and hopefully we'll have some good announcements coming in the next couple of months. Um, but there are good things that are in progress right now with housing. That's We know that's one of the main things that we need to address. Also, one of the things that previous council had worked on was redevelopment of our parks. So we're going to go into a workshop here in the next week or so and, and talk about our, our Chaplin Park, Crossings Park, uh, and the different parks that we have to have those redeveloped, to bring them up to standards as to what we need. It's, it's time to take a look at them wholeheartedly and, and bring them to a current standard. So that we'll be working on. Some of the main things that we want to focus on this year that, that I want to focus on is community trust and respect and decorum and, and, and have a transparency so that the community knows what we're doing. And one of the ways that we're going to do that, which we've already started, is we've gone away from two council meetings a month to a workshop, which we had last, uh, last week, and then a, a council meeting. This gives us the opportunity to have more conversations with the public about what we're looking to do and how we're going to address the different items that, that need to be addressed within our community. And, and we've got to focus on redevelopment. So with and the LMO, the land management ordinance. So having these workshops will bring, you know, bring a sense of understanding as to what we're thinking as a council, what the community thinks about what we're talking about, and how we can improve upon our character as a community. And, and that we hope will really bring uh, not only more transparency and clarity to the conversation, but improve the timeline for getting things done. That way, when we come out of a workshop and we go to a council meeting and or into a committee, the committee knows what council's thinking, what the community's thinking, and they may have gotten more ideas from those meetings to, to bring out of committee so that we don't go back and forth and, and we can really push some things forward and get things done. Um, COVID interrupted a lot of things that were happening on the island in the past four years uh, for the previous council. And, and now's the time to, to address those things that have been put behind and move it forward. By the end of this year, we really wanna be in a position where we can check a lot of things off the list, um, whether it be the parks, whether it be housing, whether it be number of things. We've gotta start looking forward. You know, what we're doing now is we're, we're being reactive. So it's time to be proactive. And we hope that by year end, we'll have checked enough things off the list that we can become more proactive and start looking towards what we need to do, you know, how we're gonna address resiliency, how we're gonna address stormwater, how we're gonna address different things that may come around, have those plans in place so that we're not being very reactive. We know what we're gonna do and how we'll handle things. Um, you know, some other things that we're going to work on besides the LMO rewrite and, and the parks is the Community Development Corporation for the Gullah area. Uh, that is in place. We are, we are now looking for board members. So I, I encourage anybody and everybody that is interested to be a part of that group to go to the town website to sign up to see if, you know, you can get on that board. It's going to be a great endeavor for our community. It's going to really help out the North End and, and the Stony Track. It's going to be a great experience for us. And you know, we've got you know, roughly $5 million that have been allocated by you know, Tom Davis through his efforts with the state. And that's gonna drive a rural redevelopment in that stony area. So I encourage you to go to the town website and, and, and apply for those, those committee seats. Um, let's see, you know, there, there really right now isn't much other things that we're gonna be looking at uh, besides the, the stuff that comes around day to day. 
Um, we're working with, with residents on you know, some developments that are coming around to, to make certain that we're addressing the LMO to, in the future, prevent clear cutting, uh, making certain that new developments are built within the character of Hilton Head Island and, and protect what we have. You know, it's, it's really about our environment and our ecology and ecosystems and everything else that we've got to make certain that are in place. Mayor, thank you. And uh, Jana is asking, what is what are your thoughts on the Mid Island Track? Yeah, so the Mid Island Track, while it's been you know approved by previous council in in conceptual plans only, we're going to have to go into workshops and really take a look at that um, to see what what the elements need to be. You know, I, I I look at a conceptual plan, I look at the cost that's been put out there with this conceptual plan, and and I think it's a little uh, burdensome. So there's got to be a little more understanding as to what it is that we need, what the costs are to maintain that, where the funding comes from, not only to build it, but to maintain it. So we're going to take a look at that holistically and make certain that it fits the character of the island. Mayor, in town hall now, most of the meetings are streamed. You can see them uh, streaming live, which is, I think, helps tremendously with transparency. And also, I think it's one that uh, allows people, working people who are in their office uh, to be able to have those meetings on, to be able to watch those meetings, and I guess probably multitasking. So uh, from your standpoint, how important is it for those to continue being streamed and the public having that access? Well, I, I will speak from my, my standpoint. Over the past couple of years, I have, I have uh, been streaming the meetings in the background and listening for you know, since they came around. I, I think it's of the utmost importance to have that and, and continue that. Um, obviously, if, if somebody wants to have a say, they've got a chance to send in a written comment or go in person, but having the streaming, you know, access is key. And, and being able to understand and hear what's going on within your community is so important. Thank you, Mayor. And Sam is asking about the uh, Caligny Beach Park, the area, and it's, it's so uh, uh, day trippers seem to use that a lot and to see what type of improvements or parking ideas you might have for that area. Sure, so uh, there, there has been a group that's been uh, pulled in by the town to address and study uh, the parking within not only Caligny, but everywhere that the town has parking spots on the island for beach parking. So technology will, will, will have a play in this, uh, mobile apps. Um, so we'll be able to determine what spaces are open. So if somebody is looking to come into the island from, from off, you know, anywhere from Beaufort to Bluffton, Okatee, Pool or wherever, they can pull up an app and say, you know, it seems like there's a lot of traffic on the island today. A lot of, there's not many parking spots open. So hopefully that will help ease some of that congestion that we have, but also give the information to, to the day trippers that so they understand what they're facing if they're trying to come here. So this is a program that is that is going to uh, be addressed, I believe, in the next two months as well. Um, so look forward to uh, getting that out there. The last council dealt with the pandemic and uh, fought through that really, really hard and really, really well. Uh, the new council comes into office with probably town revenues at the, the highest that they've ever been. And I just want to mention that uh, uh, we look forward to working with you, the new council, standing side by side and making sure that uh, Hilton Head Island continues to remain strong and the health and uh, economic well-being continues to, to be those that uh, we can keep people in jobs full time year round and, and make great changes that need to be made. Uh, for our community and for our residents. And I know you'll lead the way in that and doing a terrific job. Absolutely. 
Mayor, thank you for being with us. We look forward, whether we're sitting in town hall or uh, watching, watching it stream, to uh, continue to watch council meetings and planning meetings and other things that are going on. But can, congratulations again. We look forward to working with you and the new council. Thank you. Appreciate it. And happy new year to all. Thank you. All right. This coming Monday will be uh, Martin, Dr. Martin Luther King holiday. And uh, I want to remind everyone of the march that will take place at Hilton Head High School starting at 10 a.m. And then in Bluffton, uh, they're going to be holding their fifth annual Black Excellence Ball. Uh, the culinary experience that will be held at the Culinary Institute of the South. And that will take place on January the 13th. And that's being put on by, uh, hosted by the uh, Bluffton's Dr. Martin Luther King Observance Committee. Also, I uh, want to mention that here in just a few minutes, we'll be doing a, a ribbon cutting at the new Parkers off the Bluffton Parkway at 11 a.m. And so if you're out and about, and we would love to have you stop by uh, the new Parkers for that ribbon cutting and, and support them as they open a new, uh, a new kitchen and, and gas station. So together, uh, we, we wrapped up 2022, and I just put it out there to each of you that let's, uh, let's make 2023 a great year. Let's make it one of putting civil back into civility and putting kind back into mankind. And I think as we as a community can certainly do that together and uh, we will all be better for it. Thanks for tuning in. Look forward to being with you next time. Have a great rest of your day and let's make it a great year.